My friends, hello. How are you? My name is Ben Tartine, and this is the podcast called Cultivating Tov. Tov, the Hebrew word that we translate into good. In the beginning, God created and said, it is tov. It is good. And it means goodness, beauty, things working rightly together the way they're intended. So you and I are tov. We're part of this goodness God created. We're built into it. We're being healed into the strongest goodness ever. It's also tov. So that's what we're doing here. Cultivating Tov is designed as the primary weekly teaching for our church communion uh, that meets here in East Portland. So it's called Tov Communion. And this is, if you if you think about it in a certain way, it's kind of like the sermon for the week. We, we post it before Sunday and listen to it and then gather together to interpret and think through this life we're living together with Jesus. It's evolved over this COVID time, and it has become very, uh, very beautiful. So as always, a warm welcome to friends, neighbors, everybody from around this Portland area. And then if this finds you beyond the Portland area, it's good to be together like this and turning our attention to Jesus. Each week, we follow the Revised Common Lectionary's dedicated gospel passage for the coming Sunday. So for this week, we're in the fifth Sunday of Lent. Our gospel passage will be in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 33. Each week, we set the gear shift for the thinking gear of our soul. And I think the Old Testament would say that we're training our hearts to hear. You know, we're training our hearts to hear the the mindset uh, and the Hebrew people, in terms of the seat of knowledge, the place where knowing is, we think of it as the brain, the head, and they understood it more so as the heart. So I think the Old Testament would say that we're we're training our hearts to hear, not just the thinking gear of our soul. You can see they're kind of two sides of the same coin. The idea is we're cultivating life in in a way that is guided by Jesus. So pressing into his kingdom, being formed with his true words and the infinite love of God. So anyway, I'm out in my cedar shed again in the backyard. Uh, The rain has been on and off, though. I would expect to hear a thunderstorm roll through, perhaps. And then I think there must have been a cat or squirrel come through the back couple yards here because the dogs have been going nuts. So I apologize in advance if if the neighbor dogs are my own, start freaking out. What can you do? It just is what it is. It's the way the world works. <laughs> okay. Well, the opening question, and this one is not, I'm not going to deliberate at all on it. It's just a question. And then you got to kind of put it in your back pocket and then we'll get it out again at the end. But here's the question. I'm sure it's one that we've all wondered plenty of times, perhaps even on a momentary basis, like, as we go through our day, where in the world today is the absolute most important activity happening? I mean, the most important work where you could say that personally, like where in your world, where in your world is the most important stuff getting done? Make it really personal. What am I doing? Where of all the things I'm doing throughout the week, what would I say is just Mission critical. I absolutely have to do this. Otherwise, things are not going to go well for me. You know, what's the most important work being done in your life or in the world as you see it around you? The things people are doing that are number one, most significant work. Okay. 
probably a lot of ways to answer that. It's interesting. I would love, maybe this is the question to ask when we gather together on Zoom, quite frankly. Because there's a lot of ways to uh, go at that. Okay, well, here's what I want to do this week. I want to read the passage right out of the gate all the way through. Then I want to jump back into the context and particularly the idea of loving and preserving our lives in the way of this world. So we'll we'll go, I mean, all the, we did last week too, go all the way back to Exodus. Remember how we talked about Jesus being a new Moses or like Moses being a type of Christ or type of Messiah? Well, I think that's part of why we keep finding ourselves back in the Exodus passage because there was a, a story there that sort of grounds the story here. I hope that makes sense. It kind of makes sense to me. <laughs> okay, so here's the passage uh, to begin. We'll go back into some con, and then we'll come, as we often do, back to the passage at hand and break it down in more detail. Sound all right? Let's begin then, and we'll read from the New Living Translation, John chapter 12, and I'm going to read t- verses 20 through 33. Uh, this is our text for uh, the coming Sunday, fifth Sunday of Lent this year. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven, saying, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. Verse 29, when the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared that an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. This is the gospel, and thanks be to God. You know, thanks be to God for giving us the gospel. And this part of it we just read, oh, there's a lot there, isn't there? I will be lifted up. That harkens back to last week, doesn't it? The bronze snake was lifted up. We talked in depth about that from the passage, you know, John three fourteen is where he mentions it, but it kind of carries the theme through to 16. I will draw everyone to myself, he says. 
It's crucial. Again, we emphasize the need to hear Jesus with our hearts here and not to try to force fit another theological idea on top of this crucial truth. We have to integrate this statement Jesus is saying into the rest of the passages in the Bible we read. And he's not saying, I will draw the worthy or I will draw those who have proven their commitment, those who got themselves together correctly or any category of humanity. He says, I will draw everyone to myself. That's a deep, deep mystery, my friends. We have to continue wondering what it means. I think as I know everybody who belongs to our communion here in Portland, we have all come from a different way of understanding people. Not as everybody is being drawn into Christ. We were taught something different. But perhaps not contradictory. Okay? It's this has to be part of how we understand the work of Jesus. His aim is at the whole world. I mean, remember the three passages we talked about last week as well? Paul the Apostle says to the church in Corinth, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's 2 Corinthians 5.19. I read these last week, and I'm going to read them again because I think it's worth hearing twice at least. Remember how he wrote to his pastor friend Timothy. He says, the living God who is the Savior of, quote, all people— especially of those who believe. That's First Timothy 4.10. Well, you can see a distinction there. Those who believe, that's not all people. But he's the Savior. Okay, what does it do for us? Well, it opens a door for me that says, I need to be careful about how 100% certain I am about how God saves human beings. I'm confident at this point in my life that I was given a picture of how he does that that was way, way, way too simplistic. And I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for what I was taught, the foundation I was given. How else could I be who I am or you who you are? But as we grow, the call from Jesus always is to be learners, people who are curious and open. I was talking with my friend uh, Jonathan just today, who's writing a kid's book about curiosity. And um, how important that is to everything in terms of our attitude, our posture toward life. The learner, the follower, Jesus says, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you seek the kingdom, you will find it. Go and make disciples. Greek word matethes means learners, people who are open and listening and learning. So I could go on and on, but the point is this part of the theology of the New Testament has to be how we understand our neighbors as well and what God is doing in their lives. Apparently, he has very much been interested in everybody. Again, uh, Jesus Christ is the covering of our sins and not for our, so our Christians, sins only. John himself writes in his own letter, so 1 John 2 verse 2. He says, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. I said this last week. In the Greek, it reads, perihalu tu kosmu. Cosmos, literally meaning the, the, the world, and that um, preposition peri, uh, it means around, covering, fully encompassing the sins of the entire cosmos. John sees that way. The, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the righteous. <laughs> you know, the right people, 
the ones who matter, the ones who did the, you know, I, no, this, the whole world. Uh, Athanasius picked up on this in a, in a picture that he saw in his mind in his work on the incarnation. We read through that over, over Christmas. Some of us did. It's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. Okay, he says, uh, he, Jesus, spread out his hands on the cross, and he drew the ancient people of the old covenant with one hand and the Gentiles of the new covenant with the other, uniting them in himself. No doubt that particular point was one of the craziest things he ever did or suggested. Jesus, I mean. The idea that God's Messiah was not going to destroy Rome and not going to destroy the unholy and ungodly neighbors around them, that was a big, big deal. He didn't even let the centurion's ear get destroyed by Peter. Remember when Peter slashes it off with his sword? Jesus heals. Okay, so he he's not coming to do what they've been expecting him to do. But he is showing up with all of the power and Old Testament fulfillment of the Messiah. So they're like, man, this sure looks like what the Old Testament's talking about, but he's 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 got none of the bloodlust. <laughs> you know, he's he's outright not the Messiah. It can't be. He's he's Tove, he's really good and beautiful, right functioning, so much so that everywhere he goes, life is being given. He's renewing life and healing life. He's creating potential for new life as he plants these seeds of truth in people. I mean, we see the seed of truth planted in, in Peter early and get to watch him for three years. Imagine what it was like 20 years later as he continued learning and growing. Well, he's planting seeds of life all over the place, and he's doing this, you know, it's not so it's not cryptic or like super secret. It's pretty clear what he's doing. He's being humble, kind, strong by trusting in God. He doesn't trust in other stuff. He doesn't even have other stuff, which probably evidence of how much he trusts him. He's not fighting or controlling or demanding or threatening. He's never manipulating. There's never deceit in his mouth or guile. He's not being crafty underhanded. So as he lives this way, he's planting seeds, but notice all those ways of living are pretty vulnerable. So he's taking a hit. It means he's dying or even totally dead to the way the world just works on average, and he's alive to the way of God's infinite love. That's why he's so patiently loving wherever he goes. And, and what is he always doing with the people walking around with him? <laughs> you know, love, serve, care for, nourish, build up, strengthen, encourage, heal, speak true words. It's a beautiful, beautiful posture toward neighbors. They're picking up on it, slow but sure. And that's how he's living. But like we said, he's taking a hit for it. So they're baffled about all of this uniting the Gentiles into the people of God while also carrying the, you know, the marks of the Messiah. And it's like, how, what in the, anyway, he's drawing everybody into himself. I think that's what you're beginning to see, even as we're so baffled, I think even still, about how he welcomes everybody to himself, drawing everyone into himself. It's a beautiful mystery. For God so loved the world, not a part of it, 
not some section of it. He loved the whole world in a specific way. He entered it. He lived with us, Emmanuel, God with us, and never one time tried to harm or control or manipulate or force or lord himself over human beings in any way. Read Philippians chapter 2 for like one of the high points in the New Testament that speaks to that exact thing. It says he could have and he did not because it's not the way of infinite love. However much we expect or think that it's glorious and powerful, it's not. He came to heal and restore and bring life and speak true words. What a gift. And he came to do this for everyone. Okay, so last week's gospel passage pulled us deep into that famous, we called it the gospel premise message. You know, the one we've kind of all heard first, John 3.16. And we, and we hear Jesus inviting human beings into a continuous way of believing. That was a big point last week, that it's not just, I agree, now I'm done. Instead, it's, it's not a finish line, it's a starting line, an ongoing active way of entrusting ourselves every moment to this way we see Jesus living. So a big question we wrestled with was this, am I entrusting myself to the way the world works Or am I entrusting myself to the way the Christ lives? Oh, man. I tell you what, as I was thinking through how to present these passages, that just sort of, I just typed it out and kept going. Then as Allie and I, we always listen to the podcast together and have coffee on Saturday mornings. That's our our new sort of church rhythm. And as we're listening to it, I hear that question kind of spoken back at me. And it was like a freight train in my face. It was so intense. And you'll hear as we continue, it. it's kind of a, a theme through this whole teaching today. I think it is a wonderful thing to ask. It, I mean, it's just so, um, what's the word? <laughs> Punchy. It's just so, it's really clear to me. What am I doing? What matters the most to me? What's the most important? Am I, and, and when I look at what I believe is the most important work, the most important thing to be doing in the world, what does it say about what I'm entrusting myself to? And is it the way the world works or is it the way the Christ lives? Okay. We've got to go all the way back. Imagine with me, if you can, the slaves in Egypt. Okay. Um, Moses is a type of Messiah, a type of Christ, if you will, the uh, thinking typologically, he's Joshua is as well. In fact, Joshua's name is Jesus's name, Yeshua. Um, so there's types of saviors in the Old Testament, and none of them are the Christ, but they build a foundation and an understanding for what the Christ will be. Was Moses perfect? He wasn't. Is Jesus? Yes. So there's a, there's a major difference <laughs> right there, you know, significant. But the big idea is when you're looking back to these, it's like a story to almost imagine yourself in, to think of Moses as this type of Christ. Well, what are the slaves doing if not entrusting themselves to the way that their world works? And don't hear me pointing a finger at them. They had to. It's not because they're so terrible or foolish or immoral. I, I'm sure they were immoral. And there were sinful in, in ways and foolish in ways, for sure. They're people. But the story is about being trapped, enslaved, under the power 
of a, of a ruler of the world and deceived by that ruler. It's over them. And, and however deadly and painful and life-sucking it was to live under that ruler, it's still the normal way of life that everybody understands is just how it works. It's what it was. What can you do? Pharaoh taught them how the world works. Think of some of his tweets, you know, more bricks, more bricks. Stay efficient and productive and profitable. Isn't that his theme? At least as he barks it down to those he sees as less than. Do, achieve, don't ever stop with the work. What work? The work that it takes to get yourself safe and to advance to a better place. That work, he says, is most important in your life. Don't, whatever else you do, whatever, that's what matters most. So, remember, as we come through the first parts of the Exodus story, and and, and they're, they're beautiful, we get to Exodus 5, and now Moses is going to kind of come at Pharaoh. And he has said, he says, Pharaoh, we want to go out into the wilderness for a three-day journey to worship our God. And the response from the Pharaoh is the same, I think, you'd hear from many bosses who govern us in the workplaces today in our world. And it's basically, if I let you guys do that, it's going to distract you from your work, the activity that absolutely matters the most, more than anything else. So he says, no, <laughs> not happening, bub. Now, listen to these words. I'm going to read it right out of Exodus chapter 5. We'll start in verse 3, and it might almost sound familiar. It's kind of eerie, you know. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared. So let us take this three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, he will kill us with a plague or a sword. Okay. They're they're taking it seriously. We got to do this, Pharaoh. And verse 4, Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron... He's got a question. Why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. (laughs) Verse 5, look, there are many of your people in the land, and you are stopping them from their work. Verse 6, the same day the Pharaoh sent his order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foreman, Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves. You know, Pharaoh's mad right here. But still make them do the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. Here here it is. Here's the language from the Pharaoh, from the taskmaster, the slave lord. They are lazy. Okay. How many times have you heard that voice in your life in the last year as COVID has flipped everything upside down and you don't know what to do? You hear that dark voice. You're lazy. You're lazy. You should be achieving more. You should be. You should be. You should be. Oh, my friends, I've heard it too. (laughs) Jesus, save us from that wicked voice that destroys us. Help us. Well, there's the Pharaoh, the epitome of all that's wrong, right? He says they are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Verse 9, he says, load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. Holy smokes. Do you see it? It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, but okay, not even do you see it, but can you just feel this moment? The ruler or king of their world has been teaching and forming them for like 400 years, 430. Imagine how deeply formed their entire Israelite culture has become in their way of life. 
I mean, in the U.S., what are we, 200, 300 years old, how, depending on how you count it? Think about how much the kings in our world have taught us about what really matters the most. I don't know that our modern kings are that different from the famous pharaoh or the old kings back in the day. Take a break from your work to do what? To go and turn your attention to God and other people? What are you talking about? To go out and celebrate the goodness of... This is the goodness of... Get back to work, right? Pharaoh says, I don't even know this God, you know, who you're talking about. What does he have to do with me? What does he have anything to do with anything that really matters? You're turning them away from what really matters, Moses. You're stopping them from doing what they need to do to survive and what they need to be alive. Get back to work. More bricks, more bricks. Exodus 5, 9. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. So the way the world works, it forms us to feel and think deep down in our hearts that we are in danger of dying and that the resources are very limited. So here's what you have to do if you want to actually have life. Entrust yourself to the people who provide the resources to you Give your life to them because their resources will give you the life you want. They will make it possible for you to preserve your life and your spouse's life or your friends or kids or families. If you make the bricks and do the work without dividing your attention to other less productive things, then you can really advance. And don't you want to? Honestly? Don't you want to advance and become better and more worthwhile? Don't you love being alive? Yeah, we love life and we know how it works. So do the necessary things to get where you want to be, which is always a better place than where you are now. Think that way. Think about how to climb the mountain, how to build and grow and advance and secure stabilize and ensure and really become important and profitable, really become known, respected, a force to be reckoned with. Yes, love your life, dedicate yourself to building a wonderful life, and you will be able to. Oh, man, I feel like I have to take a shower. It's so familiar to me. It's like I'm speaking to you a voice that's been in my head for so long. Oh, man. And if it's in yours, Jesus, save us both. Isn't that not the temptation scene with the devil and Jesus? Here's the Satan, the dark ruler of the world that wrecks everything. And his his temptation, right? His, his invitation is, entrust yourself to me and I will give you international fame and respect. You'll be governing everything you can see here and more. You'll have everything you could ever want. I know how this world works. Believe me. And Jesus says, nope, you lie. You bring death, not life. Everything you say is old and normal and mainstream. Average, boring, worthless death. All of the old gods and the old kings, they all sound like you, Satan, Fake control, fake threats, fake and manipulative promises that never come to pass and always enslave. Go away from me, Jesus says. <laughs> you know, I'm paraphrasing there for sure, but I think that's what he's getting at. 
You sound so real. There's no doubt Jesus was pulled in the satanic direction. Otherwise, you cannot rightly call it a temptation. (laughs) It's just who we all are, including Jesus. We are prone to move in that direction. But Jesus shows us it's possible. He shows us another way. And as we'll see here, he defeats that satanic voice. Oh, man, I love Jesus, and so do you. And we're learning to do that more and more every week. You are Ra, I think Jesus would say to the Satan. That's the Hebrew word opposite of Tov. Ra, that's evil, death-bringing, corrupting, destroying, destroying the human life and soul. God is Tov, his creation Tov, his humanity, all humanity. It's part of his good creation. Remember the first lines of John's gospel? You know, we're in John chapter 12 today, but all the way back to the first lines. Verse 1, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Man, that says a lot of things. I know, but for our focus today, I want to point out that this has to mean that Jesus understands Tov more than any other person. He knows what is good and beautiful and right functioning, right working. He built us, he loves us, and his way of life is a picture that he paints with himself. His own decisions and thinking and speaking and doing. See his life as this painting. And all of his life is a picture of what it means to be alive for real. And the painting is forever alive and moving. The frame is open. If you try to touch that picture, your hand passes right through the surface of the canvas. It's a beautiful but open canvas, three-dimensional. You can stick your arm all the way in. You can leave this world and climb into his kingdom and totally immerse yourself in the way of Jesus. Like Moses inviting those broken, lonesome, hurting, dying slaves stuck in the evil power of the old kings, Jesus invites you and me, broken, alone, hurting, dying slaves, stuck in the power of the same old kings. He invites us to distrust the fake promises they always use and instead entrust ourselves into his way of living. And that brings us full circle back to our passage today in John chapter 12. I'm going to read it momentarily here, but let's establish a little bit of context just in the actual gospel of John. John chapters 1 through 12 move at a pretty good clip if you're thinking about a story. We're going here and going there and coming back and we're back there and now we're here and going, you know, we're moving. He seems to organize these first 12 books around seven major semions or signs that Jesus does. Sometimes we call them miracles, but I think signs is a better, well, that's the Greek word, and, and it's, it, it conveys more of what they are. He's pointing to something greater. So then, after you're through chapters 1 through 12, 
you get into chapter 13 and it slows way down. And the story gets really intimate and really detailed. So all four chapters are basically one scene, 13 through 17. And chapter 17 is that high priestly prayer where you only, you only hear it in John. You know, you, you heard it first here. <laughs> so our passage this week comes at the – and that, so then after 17, you get into the passion narrative and go, you know, chapters 18 through 21. Well, the first half has often been dubbed the book of signs. The second half has been dubbed the book of glory. And our passage this week is kind of right at the hinge point between the two right after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, okay? So at the end of John's gospel, so if we were to go all the way to the end, just about, he tells us why Jesus did these signs and why he recorded them in this book for subsequent generations. And it's beautiful when a gospel writer tells you in really clear words, like, here's the purpose of my book. You know, in biblical scholarship, we often debate about what is the main purpose of this letter or whatever. Well, John just lays it out. So in John chapter 20, verse 30, he says this, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miracles or many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. Okay, so that's probably good because John only hits on seven big ones. (laughs) He says, there was all kinds of signs that he did, verse 31, but these are written so that you may continue to believe. There are New Living Translation captured that participle again in believing, not just so that you may believe as a one and done, but so that you may be continuously believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. This is why he did what he did, and it was written down for you and me to read so we could come to know for real that Jesus is legit and then come alive. That's, that's what this is about, knowing what's real and becoming fully alive. That's a beautiful trajectory, isn't it? Just like Moses' signs in front of the Egyptian rulers in the old world, they were intended so that the people would believe And that by believing, they would actually follow Moses physically and tangibly into a new world. (laughs) Yeah, You see the parallel? Jesus' signs in front of the old world are intended so that, as John says, you and I and our neighbors would entrust ourselves to him or be continuously believing in him. And that by believing in this way, we would follow him into new life. Well, now we kind of think back to those opening 12 chapters, and on the front end of that section of text, you know, chapter 3, where they recognize everybody's going out to him instead of coming to us in sort of an alarmed fashion. Now we come to the end of that major section, and we see the Pharisees saying to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. (laughs) And it's like John is throwing a wink and a nod and saying, see? This is what happened when Jesus lived the way he did in this world. It caused what you actually hear him saying, I will draw all things into me or heal this world by drawing all things into Christ. And then this moment we're reading and starting in John 12, 20, is kind of this introduction of who he is to the world outside of the Israel sort of bubble. So here's how it begins. And I, 
I hope that the context we're in here helps to sort of anchor then how important this is when John writes in verse 20, some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Okay, this is not loyal, faithful Hebrews, Jews, Israel, you know, this is not (laughs) Israelites coming to do what they do. This is a whole new dimension. And so verse 21, they paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus, you know, and Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. This is a real punctuated moment. Like, we're we have we have people from the outside who are wanting to step into this picture. You know, they're sticking their hands in anyway, and they're realizing there's more than meets the eye. Oh, man, the Transformers, there you go. Boom, right out of the gate, we see the only two disciples of the 12 who actually have Greek names, Philip and Andrew. They don't have Hebrew names like the rest of them. Philip comes, we're told right here, specifically from Bethsaida of Galilee. Well, in the scriptures, there's kind of an echo here. Matthew 4, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Back in the prophet Isaiah, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. So the point, well, how is it possible that even the ones from the unworthy nations, the Gentile people, the Greeks, you know, they come and speak to the Greek-named disciples in the lands where the Gentiles are plentiful? You know, you hear that echo, and they come with a question. And the question is, sir, we want to meet Jesus. That's what our New Living Translation says. That's how we've read it twice so far. The NIV says we would like to see Jesus. New American Standard says we would like to see Jesus. The New English Translation, I like to quote all the time, we would like to see Jesus. In the Greek, it's adon, which means to see or to visit. So I think it's nuanced more so towards seeing but I think our NLT picks up on meeting. They want to see him. They want to meet him. You can see how those are very compatible ideas. We want to pay attention to him. Interestingly, in the end, Jesus will move that verb beyond simply coming to see. It seems that's good. seems to be the first step, come and see. But he changes the verb to follow. Not just come and see me and, you know, think cool stuff. Come and see, and then you will know what is true, and then you can learn to follow in this truth, and that will set you free. Come and follow me is the main goal. So this is a big deal because Jesus is going to live super public now. He's been showing himself at first to his disciples and mother, you know, family, and he's helping them to see who he really is. And over and over from that very first miracle onward, They want Jesus to go big, and he keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. Okay, this is in all the preceding stories coming up to this moment. You might remember Mary at the wedding in Cana where she wanted Jesus to, and he said to her, my hour has not yet come. There was this sort of hesitation that he expressed. This isn't the time. We're not doing that just yet. My hour has not come, not yet. Here, however, that that changes completely. Uh, Dale Bruner in his commentary on John says that he once stood to preach in a pulpit in a church, you know, a big wooden pulpit. And he said there was a sentence carved into the wood, you know, in a place that only the preacher standing behind it would be able to see it. And carved right into it was this sentence. It said, sir, 
we would very much like to see this Jesus. You know, and and Bruner writes, this is a key. He said, the Greek's request says exactly what waiting congregations must long to see and hear from their pastor and teachers at each gathering. That's so beautiful to me. If you and I could see ourselves, not just imagining being a pastor in the pulpit and a wooden thing that's got a sentence in it, but just the sentence itself, like going before us in our life, we would very much like to see this Jesus. If we would think that that's what the world around us is wanting. That's the picture here. These Greek folks from, you know, all of that Hellenistic world, it just doesn't have anything to do with what this weirdo from Galilee traveling preacher, you know, is like, they, who cares? But something about him you know, it was an amazing moment. Okay. Anyway, they're coming and they're interested and they want to see him. I love how Bruner picks up on it and, and says to me, certainly as a, as a preacher and a teacher, man, that is your job, Ben, helping people see and get to know Jesus. I see that in John the Baptist. I, I need, you guys need to pay attention to Jesus now. This is who matters the most. Oh boy. There's a little answer to the question we opened with wonder if where the Christ is, is where real action has taken place in this world. If that's the action that matters most. Well, here we are. Jesus responds to their question. You know, Philip and Andrew are like, hey man, we've got some Greeks in the house. What do we do? Jesus replied, now the time has come. There's an emphasis there. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity, forever. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. My servants must be where I am. I've heard a lot of people, especially in the church world, say that the work of Jesus in the world was the most important work that was ever done. I think it's time for our Tov communion to expand that absolutely evermore into the present and say where the Christ is right now is where I want to be. The work he's doing right now is also the most important work in the world. Ooh, and that really makes you want to look and get into that picture a little bit, doesn't it? Okay, it has arrived. This is the emphatic statement here that opens Jesus's message. So, we ask, what specifically has arrived here? It has arrived. You know, now is the time. What has arrived? Well, here it is. The hour for the Son of Humanity to be glorified. Well, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, glorified, yeah. Who doesn't love glory? Sign me up. I'm in. But as the story continues, 
you know, jump to the end and kind of look back, we know that this glorified means killed on a cross unfairly and unjustly. Humiliated, you know. The time has arrived, (laughs) the time for the Son of Humanity to be killed on a cross unjustly. All throughout John, I think we see this paradox. Um, We see Mark's, the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, are constantly struggling with this paradox. The most glorious thing about Jesus is his acceptance of humiliation, unfair treatment, unjust treatment, misrepresenting what he truly said. It's glorious that he is misrepresented and he doesn't try to harm people back or shame them or control them. He still loves and forgives and tries to stay meaningfully bound or with them. They will reject and even kill, but that's not Jesus' move. His is the opposite. He accepts the injustice and the brutal treatment over and over, so much that against all of his disciples' encouragement and counsel, against all of his basic animal instinct in the human flesh, which always and only says, survive, whatever the cost— He says, no, the way of goodness and true power and real glory is the way of infinite love. I will love my opposers and my enemies even as they slaughter me, and I will pray for their healing, and I will work toward their healing with everything that I've got left. And when it fails according to the world, and when they destroy me according to the world as it so appears— I will actually then show that this death always was a part of being made and formed into the completeness and fullness of human life. Life will come out of this death. Pharaoh and the old gods and the old kings, they all say that death is the worst. Dying to yourself makes you less satisfied. Whereas living for yourself will make you happy. Defending yourself and preserving yourself is the most important. Why? Well, why is it necessary to better yourself or increase your years no matter what? Because death is the worst. It is the end. It is when the good life is over. So all you have is this little window, this little moment. So you be the one to create goodness, yeah? And we, the kings, will tell you what that goodness is by showing you advertisements and glorious rulers and glorious powers and glorious mountains of wealth and security. We'll show you you can get there if you just entrust yourself to us. Don't let yourself die. No matter what, don't. Do whatever it takes. But Jesus shows something way more. He's not thinking about death as the end of life, is he? He can't be. He's just not. I think he's saying, watch me, trust me. This is your same route. So does that mean that he's just sort of a cavalier hero who doesn't care for his well-being, kind of like, hey, you know, resurrection, who cares? Just go for it. It's not that at all. That's just sort of a reckless abandon and denial. Jesus is not abandoning or denying anything. He's integrating his human instinct to survive. That's a tove instinct. It's good. God builds it into all humanity. 
but he's integrating that instinct with the will of God. Satan and the old kings say to only entrust yourself to your instinct. Jesus says your instinct is good and God's will is supreme. So bend your instinct to his will. And the place you have to do that most intensely is when his will leads you through suffering or pain. It's in those moments where you're more like, eh, I don't know if God's will is that supreme here. <laughs> you know, and that was that's what we see in these anguished moments of Jesus is it's like, seriously, this is your will. Whew. Well, here that brings us right to Gethsemane, doesn't it? I love John's gospel, but I also love the Gethsemane scene. And in John's gospel, all you get is verse 12, 27. That's not very developed. We have one sentence, and it's kind of different. Listen to it again. Now, this is Jesus speaking, my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Oh, man, that sounds a lot like the way he taught you and me to pray, doesn't it? The first line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, hallowed be your name, glorify your name. Well, if you're a biblical literalist in this moment, and you're thinking about Jesus at Gethsemane, even if you've just been listening to this podcast for some time, because we talk about Gethsemane a lot, you could be freaking out here. I don't know if you caught it. In the other Gospels, Jesus pleads with the Father, please take this cup from me, which means he's saying, please make it so that I do not have to do this work, you know, this cup, this responsibility, handing myself over to the power guys who want me dead. Please make for another way. Here he says, what am I going to ask? That God would save me from this hour? No way. That's why I came. Okay. <laughs> God, this is the time. Now, do your thing. Bring glory to your name. I'm ready. I, I feel that kind of attitude in the way John puts it. And I feel this other, this other pleading in the, in the synoptic, the other Gospels uh, who share the Gethsemane story. So which one is it? Was he bummed about going to his death or was he like kind of triumphant? Like, this is what I'm here for. Okay, folks, I do not know how to perfectly square this it seems like a different take, but here's how I'm thinking about it currently. I think the key word is depression. That opening word in verse 27, so my soul is deeply troubled. I mean, it means horrifically anguished, deep, deep internal pain, sadness, deep depression. When you're in that state, and I think we all are, sometimes for long bouts, Sometimes for a moment or for a day or two, I think all of us through COVID, like a swirling storm of anxiety and depression. I mean, you tell me, how do your thoughts and emotions go in that kind of heart pain, that deep anguish inside of you? Mine go all over the map. I mean, you can see kind of a hopeful angle and then it's like, oh my gosh, it's over. And you know, you're... Your physical makeup is just, it's so traumatizing, that kind of moment. Well, I think Jesus did plead with God to remove the cup. I think that part of the scripture is true. And I think the other gospel writers were accurate. And I think John is also accurate. 
John often camps on angles to stories that the other gospel writers don't. I mean, 90% of the gospel of John is unique to John. It's not in the other gospels. So in the other gospels, when Jesus says, please take this cup from me, I think it's an expression of not wanting to do it. I don't want to get murdered. You know, that feels like he's very much like me and with me as a normal human being. He doesn't want to be murdered. But I remember he also accompanies that expression with a declaration of who he is. I am a God truster. His will is always good will. Hmm. Do you think that? Do you know that? That God's will for you is always good will? It's always Tove. And so he says, not my will, but your will. After he says, please take this cup, he says, but I'm, I'm integrating that human instinct into your will and your will is more important. So not my will, but your will. And from that attitude, I have no trouble also hearing him say, honestly, what would I really truly ask here? What would I honestly ask in the fullness of who I really am? Am I going to ask for a way out of living according to God's will? No, it's not going to happen. I came here to live according to God no matter what, and that's what I'm sticking to, okay? So that's how I understand what looks like a contradiction, but I think if you sort of just get into that depressive chaos, what he's going through, I think we see different angles of his insanely anguished moment. And I think they're all very true of him. Well, then, okay, that decisive moment, it sparks a voice from the sky. Verse 26, okay, again, here we go. But this is the second half of verse 26. Then, right after he says that, a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him, and then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Hmm. This is the only time in John's gospel that we hear a voice from the sky. Now, you might remember the other two times in the other gospels. We've talked about them both during the past two months here. One is the baptism scene, and then one is the transfiguration scene. And you might remember, consider all of these statements together. So at the baptism, what did he say? You are my priceless son, and I'm so proud of you. That's the way uh, Dale Bruner translates it. I love it. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then at the transfiguration, it's almost the same statement, isn't it? This is my priceless son. I'm so proud of him. I'm pleased. I'm delighted in him. Now, here's, here's what Bruner says. This doubled assurance of pleased fatherhood is the main truth the father wants his obedient son and his hearing church and the world to know about Jesus and himself. This human being who never kills or maims, never overpowers or controls or manipulates or threatens with harm, this one who heals and loves and lives freely in my way, says God, he is the epitome of human life, and I am so pleased and proud of him. And humanity, as you, this is you and me, drawn up into Christ, we too receive these words from God. 
And so the foundation of our life needs to be pleased fatherhood. God says to those living in Christ, Jesus is drawing all, everyone into, into himself. As this is happening, you too hear these words, I am your father and I'm delighted in you and I love you and you belong to me. You are my people and I am your God. Anything telling you otherwise is a false voice. Listen to me and listen with your hearts. Remember how in Matthew the statement from God's voice echoing through the sky also added another instruction? It was from the same voice in the sky. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then, it's, and then this voice said, listen to him. Give your attention to him. Yeah. Well, here at Gethsemane, the voice comes from heaven. God tells us to think of Jesus and his life already as glorious. So the three statements we have are statements of belovedness, belovedness, and then he has shown you what glory is. So I have already brought glory to my name, God says in the sky, and I will do so again. Well, that's a huge statement if you're paying attention. Okay, why? It's huge because Jesus is anything but glorious. Back to the Messiah idea. While God, the truth teller, is saying he is glorious, but he's not. Not at all. Not according to the way the world works. He's an outlaw. He's despised by people who matter. Sure, idiots and lowlife seem to like him. Who cares? It proves even more how stupid he is. Yes? What government oppression has he put a stop to? What enemy has he ever conquered? What has he even accomplished? Nothing that actually matters. Everywhere he goes, he cares about, you know, very unglorious things, and he doesn't care much about important things. But here God is saying, oh man, you have been so glorious already. And it's really going to shine soon when they lift you up and beat and curse and nail and stab you to death. That'll be the height of glory. Now, <laughs> don't mishear me. The, the wickedness I just described is not what's glorious. It's the love that you see in the Christ who will not re-destroy or destroy back in order to preserve himself. Instead, he takes on that sin. And he knows the pain and the suffering, the scar it will do. He'll take it into the ground. But God will heal and restore and put back together everything this world breaks. And what emerges in resurrection is a million times over, stronger, wiser, more beautiful. I think that's the progression. Okay, so God saw Jesus living in pure tov. Pure goodness, pure beauty, living in the right way of functioning and working with his family, friends, neighbors. Goodness at every turn. The way the world works calls us weak and pointless if that's what we do. God calls it wonderful and good and beautiful. I love how Jesus says, uh, I know he was talking to me, but it was really for your benefit. So you could once again hear from God about what is true. This is so cool. It's almost like God told everyone, listen to Jesus, you know, back in the first voice from the sky, listen to him. And now Jesus, who is also God, says, listen to that voice in the sky. That's God too. And his voice is for your benefit. 
pay attention to him. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Different members of the Trinity telling us to pay attention to the other member of the Trinity. Father from heaven says, listen to my son. Jesus says, listen to that father in the sky. Isn't that cool? Well, now to the final statement, and then we have to, just to close, we have to circle back to what I think is the core. We've already talked about it, but I'm circling around it, and we'll hit it at the end. So, But first, here's the final statement of this whole message from Jesus, which has everything to do with good kernels of wheat, good seeds from plants. Let's call them tove kernels. That's the in the title of this podcast. Tove kernels who are dying into life. We'll come back to that. Okay, so the final verses, verse uh, 31 of John chapter 12. Now the time for judging this world has come. Now is the time when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. You say, wait, what? I thought the judgment of the world would come at the end of history. Jesus is saying that this judgment has come already, mainly through his final week in Jerusalem. In his, his own story is the judgment coming. How does that make sense? How does that make sense? Well, this could get a little grotesque, but it, it registered well for me, okay? Pardon me if it's a little bit too harsh on the image. Think about what would happen to you publicly if you killed your neighbor and then hung him up on a pike out in front of your house. Okay, that is a terrible image, I understand. I, I do, but this is the image of Jesus, right? Hung up on a cross. Now, it would be really odd. <laughs> I have to just acknowledge that. And it would say what? I think it would say a lot about you, wouldn't it? I mean, just imagine this happening if you were driving. This might come to this out in Portland. It's getting wild out here. But, you know, you're driving past and, and some house or some place or some city has this human being hung up and slaughtered, kind of on display for everybody to look at. Yeah? I mean, it's gro- it feels weird in your guts just to think about witnessing that. It would show everyone looking what you were—everybody who's looking would know what you were about. It would demonstrate how you had come to understand uh, what problem-solving means. <laughs> okay? So— you know, it would, it would, whoever does this to another human being, it says something about them. And their way of problem solving is apparently to kill and destroy, condemn, publicly shame, humiliate, totally disregard. So if you do that kind of thing, your actions become a judgment for everybody to see. I think that's what it means. When they hang him up on a cross, they do such wickedness to him. It says so much about them and the way that their world works. I love how Rome is not really to blame. It's the Jewish elite driving the decision to do, to do the murder, but Rome is also not opposed. It's, you know, it's certainly how Rome works. The promise of preservation and goodness to good people and the destruction of the so-called bad ones. That's how the world works. So on that cross, the whole entire world is really judged because we kind of all do this to each other. We don't instinctively die to our own wishes. We pursue them. Even if harming others is necessary, we end up destroying what is innocent and truly tove. 
Jesus was truly innocent and truly good. He still is. And they hung him up there, and and they said, this is the silliest, stupidest, it's even illy. He is so wrong. And as they did, they, they were showing a judgment upon themselves. The second part of the judgment is the judgment we make about Jesus. I mean, if that neighbor stuck on a pike in my front yard is a judgment about my own hate and foolishness, and, and imagine how much that says about me to the onlooking world. Imagine the judgment we arrive at three days later when somehow my neighbor, you know, comes back to life and resurrects and is whole and fully alive. That that gives us a judgment about him, doesn't it? And it forces me to wonder how in the world, who, what, who is this guy? So on one hand, the world is judged false and destructive in the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And on the other hand, Jesus is judged true and infinite in the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross and then resurrecting. That's the moving painting. You're invited into both movements, invited into the humble death and invited into the good resurrection. That painting, my friends, that's the painting that he invites us to come into. Both of those. Meanwhile, as we enter that painting with a willingness to let go of self-glorification or self-preservation, we also enter the hope of goodness and resurrection. We see the judgment on Jesus in resurrection that finally, once and for all, declares humanity will die, but death is not its end. It's only part of the first stage of being fully alive, fully healed into Christ-like humanity. So the final words from Jesus, one more time. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. And he said this to indicate how he was going to die. When I'm killed in this way and lifted up and pinned on a cross with iron nails through my human flesh, the double judgment you see there, exposing the false way that our world works and exposing the good way that the Christ lives, That will be a picture of me beginning the long, patient, loving process of drawing everyone to myself. So the cross is not primarily the way Jesus dies for our sins. It is primarily the way that Jesus exposes the false and destroying way the world works and reveals the truth, the glorious truth of human life in him, which is indestructible. And in this truth, we can reject the pharaohs and the old kings and the old gods. Why? Because the basic foundation of all of their threats and promises is death and life. They falsely threaten you with death, and then they falsely promise they can give you life. They who entrust themselves to the way of the world will be thrown out, he says. Now is the time for Satan, the ruler of the world, to be cast out, he says. What does that mean? It means exercised, like a demon getting blasted out, cast out by Jesus' powerful death and resurrection. And very specifically, because we all know there's plenty of evil still happening, yeah? You don't need me to prove that. 
It means he's thrown out from over you, from over us. This is important because this is, once again, this time between. Satan's power is crippled. He's still walking around, though, and inviting people to live in his way. The thing is, though, now, in the light of what we see on the cross and resurrection that follows, we literally know and trust and entrust ourselves to Jesus and say we don't have to live according to the pharaohs and the old gods and the old kings anymore. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 opens with this as its first question. Uh, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is beautiful. Uh, that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil. Okay? Not the presence of just yet, but the power of. The devil's still around, but he is no longer over you at all. You can refuse his lies and reject his way. He has only fake and deceitful power, not real power. Like the way he threatens us with death, as though he has the power to take away the goodness of God. No. No, he does not. Nothing will, nothing good that God has made will be taken from him. Jesus says, death is necessary. It's designed and similar to the design of the seeds that plants yield, or the kernels of wheat that must, quote, die before they bring forth the life that is hidden within them. Death is not your end, and I alone give you life. I always have. I created you. I love you. I call you good. Okay. Well, that carries us then to our final thought. Uh, we've ended the passage now, but I want to circle back to the core of the message here. We've already read it twice, but let's give it a third listen, and let's listen with our hearts. Okay, this is back to verse 24 through 26. I tell you the truth. That's Jesus speaking. It's like that. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Some translations here go with a more abrasive um, note, and we have to speak to it because it, it'll say, unless you hate your life, you know, you will lose it. And here it says, those who care nothing for their life. And here, I think, again, a literalist kind of interpretive method. <laughs> if you're going to just read everything literally, this you get in big trouble here, don't you? You know, you got to hate yourself. No way does Jesus mean we should think poorly of ourselves or hatefully toward ourselves or toward human life in general at all. He's saying that if you hold self-preservation— as the supreme goal of your life, if you love your life. It's kind of like Gollum in the ring. My precious, my precious. This is all that matters. Then you're already dying fast. 
And if you're doing whatever it takes to increase or advance your own pleasure or your own status, you're going to die and live a very unsatisfying, anxious, slave-like, fear-driven life. You'll do harm to yourself and everybody you know. Uh, So back to our commentator, Dale Bruner, he says it this way, the person who dies to the supremacy of his or her own self-preservation and advancement at all costs. This is the person who, you know, hates their life. Dying to the supremacy of your own self-preservation or advancement. Saying, "I, I hate that stuff. I hate just trying to keep myself alive and advance at all costs. Okay? So he's saying, unless you can learn to really not want to do that stuff and see it as pointless, you're going to have a hard time walking with Jesus because Jesus does not self-preserve, clearly, look at the cross, and and he doesn't try to advance himself at any cost. In fact, he never harms another. So the goal is not to just loathe yourself. Oh, I suck. I hate my... No, the goal is to let go of the way of the world and how it works. So it always promises self-preservation and advancement at the cost of others. That's the way of the world. Do that in your toast, Jesus is saying. Let go of that which means being willing to die, accepting the reality and necessity of death, and then you're like a kernel of wheat. So when you take a kernel of wheat and you throw it in a hole in the dirt, by all rights, it looks like that's the end of that kernel of wheat. It looks like death. However, it's the only way for that kernel to bring forth new life, to bring forth the life that is embedded into it. Man, you and I, if he's teaching us a good metaphor, and I think Jesus is prone to use good metaphors in his teaching. (laughs) If he's teaching us well, he's teaching us that we have tremendous life embedded in us, almost like it's waiting to be burst forth. And I wonder if what keeps it so shrouded and hidden is all the the sin and deception and pain that we have to pile on ourselves walking through this world. And he's saying, we're going to put all that pain and deception and wrong corruption in the grave. And then that life that I built into you from the beginning, oh man, wait till you see that come forth. The same is true with Jesus's cross. What looks like perfect evidence to prove that Jesus is weak and pointless, you know, yeah, just bury him in a hole, turns into the greatest evidence that his dying way is dying into life. He's a good kernel, a tove kernel dying into life. And he says, I'm the firstborn brother amongst all (laughs) y'all. I'm the firstborn brother amongst this whole new creation that's being formed by being born again into him. And so are we, Tove kernels dying into life. And so sit down for this next part. This is the conclusion. I don't know. Maybe hold on to your hat because I was looking up the word Tove this week and I stumbled into a blog. And it was just so good uh, talking. These two authors are just talking about the word Tove. And I want to end with this. It's co-authored by Scott Morin and Mandy Nelson. And it's just beautiful. So I'm going to read it and then make a comment or two and we'll be wrapped up. But just listen to how this wraps our whole idea this week 
beautifully. They write this, Jesus is a notorious straight shooter. It seems, though, that not all of the language God employs is so self-evident. By way of example, consider the end of creation, where God looks at what he has done and says, good, you know, tove, like creation was a functioning faucet or something. Given what's just happened, light bursting into life, water rushing up through the cracks of the earth, good feels like an understatement. Tove first arrives on the scene in the creation story, the first story detailed in Scripture. It's the word that God uses to describe what God sees after completing various acts of creation. God's use of Tov in day three of creation does a spectacular job of unveiling for us what Tov is. Okay, now pause. This is my own comment. What I'm not going to read the whole blog to, but what they toy with is this notion of, you know, I had a good beer, or I had a good day, or I had a good movie time, you know, whatever it is. And they're like, the way we talk about goodness is pretty bland and kind of a catch-all for anything you like. And they want to say, but the the word tov in the Old Testament is more specific and, and even bigger, Okay. So that's part of what's going on in the parts I won't read, but that's what they're saying. This is a big, this is a little word with a whole lot of meaning. Okay, now in this part, they focus on day three of creation. I'll read it, Genesis 1, 11 through 12. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. Tov. Now in these two verses, there's a beautiful progression of movement. God calls forth the seeds that he has embedded in creation. Creation brings forth those seeds with the seeds of future life in them. And God sees this process as tov. Metaphorically speaking, if we are trees and we drop seeds but none of them grow, no tov. If we drop seeds and some of them grow and become trees of their own but none of them have seeds of their own, no tov. The reason why the plants and trees must have seeds inside of them is so that in due time, those plants and trees will drop their seeds into the earth and further the cycle of creating life. So, what would God call good? Anything that produces life and contains the potential for more life within it. Think of a seed becoming an orchard. Or more practically speaking, think of the conversation or a story that stirred you to bring forth life from inside of you and offer it in a way that had the potential to call forth life in another. Hmm, it just makes me think so much reading those words. Simple work of goodness toward each other 
I just love the simplicity of that. Think of a conversation or a story that stirred you to bring forth life from inside of you and then offer it in a way that had the potential to call forth life in another. Well, some of you listening, and if you've been on our Zoom gatherings each week, you might remember that moment when Tammy said, it's like creating a place for life to happen. You know, that is cultivating tov, goodness in life. We see it when a family with young children shows up to church and the people of the community help to care for those kids, even at a cost to them. They love and help and care for. They create space for encouragement in life, not for self-gratification. When we see it in the artist who doesn't seek personal glory but works to teach and help others in their own skill and creativity, as Tove is happening, you know, teaching people, helping people, seeing them come alive, being part of life-giving action. That's where the Christ is. Being where the Christ is is how we follow him. To follow me, you must be where I am, he says. Where is the most important work in the world being done? We see it in every act of forgiveness rather than fighting, in every act of mercy rather than control or domination or punishment, with every act of generosity rather than collecting the resources for ourselves so we can feel secure. What does God call tov or good? Anything that you do that produces real life in the way of Christ and contains potential for more life within it, like a seed. My friends, this Tov communion is becoming an orchard. You and I are good kernels with the goodness of life embedded into us. Okay, here's the rest of that piece of prose. There's just two more paragraphs, but they're so good. In Genesis 1, this is Scott and Mandy writing again. In Genesis 1, we see that creation is far-reaching and encompasses everything from the textured dirt into which we dig our toes to the core fibers of our very beings. God speaks seeds of life into the earth. And in Genesis 2, 7, we read about God breathing seeds of life into us as well. Uh, Here they translate it from the Hebrew. And forming is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Forming is God, the human of soil from the ground. And he is blowing into its nostrils the breath of the living. And becoming is the human a living soul. Well, it sounds so weird when you read it that way, doesn't it? But that's the Hebrew reads backwards and different. So, and forming is the Lord God. What is he forming? The human, forming him of what? Of ground, soil from the ground. And he is blowing into his nostrils the breath of the living. And becoming, what's happening, what's being created, is the human comma, a living soul. God speaks apple seeds and grape seeds and acorns and pine cones and you and me into existence, filled with the potential for fruitful life. And like seeds, we must die before real life begins. The instructions of life are embedded in us. Jesus is writing his law on our hearts so we understand ourselves as kernels who must die in order to really live in this way of Christ. Die, of course, to the way the world works. 
We instead choose the place of life, the place where the most important action in our world is happening. So if you want to be a part of the most transforming, most life-changing, best healing work on planet Earth, then be living in the way of Christ. This is where the real action is, the true adventure. Here's one more paragraph from that blog. Now it's our turn to bring forth the seeds of life within us. Seeds of encouraging, teaching, interceding, healing, designing, building, creating, and so on. We've heard it said that people who don't find meaning and fulfillment in their lives are not bringing forth what God planted inside of them and intended for them to bring forth. We can choose whether to have a hearing heart, one that listens to Jesus the Christ, the Son of Humanity, and we can choose whether to partner with God in bringing forth the seeds of life inside of us. God's invitation is on the table, so here's wishing you much tove. Isn't that beautiful? Well, my wish is it's identical. Wishing you much tove, praying for your goodness and for your life to be real and free in Jesus who we see very courageously and very lovingly dying into life. You and I are Tove kernels dying into life, not following the way the world works, but following Jesus in the way this Christ lives, to be where he is with him. Amen? Amen.